Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of gestational diabetes from the obstetric section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 33-year-old G3P2 woman at 24 weeks gestation presents to the clinic for a routine prenatal visit. Fundal height measures 33 centimeters. She is scheduled for an oral glucose tolerance test due to her fetus being large for gestational age. Her one-hour postprandial glucose level is 215 milligrams per deciliter, two-hour postprandial glucose level is 185 milligrams per deciliter, and three-hour postprandial glucose level is 146 milligrams per deciliter. This patient was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Now, let's get into the episode. As a quick overview, gestational diabetes mellitus is a condition characterized by glucose intolerance that is first recognized during pregnancy. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the prevalence of gestational diabetes, it occurs in approximately 6% of pregnant women in the United States. Risk factors include obesity, family history of diabetes mellitus, maternal age of greater than 30, having previously given birth to an infant weighing greater than 9 pounds, polycystic ovary syndrome, and non-white race. The pathophysiology involves increased hormones of pregnancy, for example, estrogen, cortisol, and human placenta lactogen, which may increase the risk of insulin resistance. Moving on to the presentation of gestational diabetes, as far as symptoms, patients may be asymptomatic in the majority of cases, however, there may be increased thirst and increased frequency of urination. Physical exam may reveal a fetus size that is large for gestational age. As far as studies to obtain in the workup of gestational diabetes, the one to know is an oral glucose tolerance test. So you will conduct a one-hour 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test and then measure venous plasma glucose after one hour. You will perform at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation and know that greater than or equal to 140 milligrams per deciliter is considered abnormal. You will then conduct an oral 3-hour 100-gram glucose tolerance test and you can confirm an abnormal test if any two of the following are present a fasting glucose level of greater than 95 milligrams per deciliter, a glucose level after one hour that is greater than 180 milligrams per deciliter, a glucose level after two hours that is greater than 155 milligrams per deciliter, and a glucose level after three hours that is greater than 140 milligrams per deciliter. Treatment of gestational diabetes can be lifestyle modifications and medical management. Lifestyle modifications include a strict adherence to a diabetic diet, that is eating healthy foods rich in vitamins, minerals, and fiber, and adhering to regular mealtimes and moderate portion sizes. This is indicated as initial treatment. Another example of lifestyle modifications include aerobic exercise and resistance training, which is also indicated as initial treatment. Finally, another lifestyle intervention includes routine monitoring of fasting blood glucose and postprandial glucose levels, which is also indicated as initial treatment. Medical management includes insulin, which is indicated in the setting of elevated blood glucose level despite lifestyle modifications. Metformin and glyburide are also potential medical management options that are also indicated in the setting of elevated blood glucose levels despite lifestyle modifications. Finally, let's end this review session talking about some complications of gestational diabetes, and we'll talk about maternal complications and fetal complications. Maternal complications includes increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes mellitus, as well as increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Fetal complications include perinatal mortality, which has an incidence of 2-5% of babies born to mothers with gestational diabetes mellitus. Another potential fetal complication is neonatal hypoglycemia, where there will be increased amount of fetal insulin in the setting of an increase in maternal glucose supply in utero. Note that this will cause beta cell hyperplasia in the newborn. 
Other potential fetal complications include congenital defects, specifically cardiac deformities secondary to the trophic effect of insulin, as well as macrosomia, which is defined as greater than 4,500 grams, and know that there will be subsequent increased risk of shoulder dystocia during vaginal delivery in macrosomic babies. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 33-year-old G2P1 woman who is at 24 weeks gestation presents for a routine clinic visit. She has been feeling well and has no complaints. She has no significant past medical history, and her previous child was born via spontaneous vaginal delivery without complications. Today, her temperature is 36.8 degrees Celsius or 98.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 115 over 75 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 68 per minute. Respirations are 18 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. On exam, fundal height measures 24 centimeters, and the fetal heart rate on the Doppler exam is found to be 145 per minute. What is the most appropriate screening test to be done at this visit? And the choices are 1. Antibody screen for RH status, 2. HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea, 3. 1-hour 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test, 4. 3-hour 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test, and five, vaginal swab for group B streptococcus. The correct answer to this question is three, one hour 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test. So this patient presenting for a routine clinic visit at 24 weeks gestation should undergo a screening test for gestational diabetes by the one hour 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test. In a pregnant patient with no history of gestational diabetes or other risk factors for pregestational diabetes, Screening begins with a 1-hour 50-gram glucose tolerance test done at 24 to 28 weeks gestation. Venous blood glucose is measured 1 hour after the patient ingests the 50-gram glucose solution, and blood glucose greater than or equal to 140 mg per deciliter is considered abnormal. If this initial test is abnormal, the patient proceeds to a 3-hour 100-gram glucose tolerance test in order to confirm the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. In pregnant patients who have a history of gestational diabetes or who have risk factors for diabetes mellitus, screening should begin with a fasting blood glucose or hemoglobin A1c. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, antibody screen for RH status is incorrect as this occurs at the 28-week visit and informs whether the pregnant patient should receive RH immunoglobulin prior to giving birth. This screening test is not typically done at 24 weeks gestation. Answer 2, HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea screening tests are done early in pregnancy, typically in the first trimester. Answer 4, 3-hour, 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test is only done if the initial screening test with a 1-hour, 50-gram glucose test is positive. This patient has no history of a positive 1-hour glucose tolerance test, and thus the 3-hour glucose tolerance test would not yet be indicated. Finally, answer 5, vaginal swab for group B streptococcus is done routinely at 36 to 38 weeks gestation and informs whether the pregnant patient receives intravenous antibiotics during delivery to reduce intrapartum transmission to the baby. To leave you with a bullet summary, the 1-hour 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test is the initial screening test for gestational diabetes and is routinely done at 24 to 28 weeks gestation. And moving on to the final question. A 31-year-old G1P0 woman presents to the obstetric service for a scheduled induction of labor at 39 weeks due to poorly controlled gestational diabetes. Her pregnancy was largely uncomplicated, aside from an abnormal 1-hour and 3-hour glucose tolerance tests, for which diet and lifestyle management were initially recommended. Due to poor glycemic control despite these interventions, the patient was started on insulin. 
postprandial glucose levels were in the 170 to 180 milligram per deciliter range throughout the remainder of her pregnancy. She has a family history of diabetes in her mother and grandmother, as well as hypertension in her father and preeclampsia in her sister. The patient had an appropriate weight gain of 26 pounds during this pregnancy with a pre-pregnancy BMI of 22.4 kilograms per meter squared. At her last ultrasound one month ago, the estimated fetal weight was 4,100 grams, and upon arrival on the labor floor, the updated measurement is 4,560 grams. The patient continues to desire vaginal delivery and is subsequently induced. After 24 hours, the infant's head delivers, but the shoulders do not. The mother's hips are flexed and pressure is applied to the suprapubic region without improvement, and internal rotation is ultimately required to deliver a male infant after three minutes. One hour after delivery, the infant is found to have an absent moral reflex on the left side. He is also found to have an herbs palsy on the left with a, quote, waiter's tip positioning. Which of the following would have most likely prevented this infant's presentation? And the choices are one, operative vaginal delivery, two, administration of magnesium sulfate during delivery, three, decreased caloric intake by the mother during pregnancy, four, intensive glycemic control in the mother during pregnancy, and five, episiotomy at the time of delivery. The correct answer to this question is four, intensive glycemic control in the mother during pregnancy. So this infant is macrosomic, suffered from shoulder dystocia during delivery, and now has an asymmetric moral reflex with a, quote, waiter's tip arm positioning, most likely herbs palsy due to brachial plexus injury. Shoulder dystocia and consequent herbs palsy can be prevented by strict glycemic control during pregnancy as this decreases the risk of macrosomia. To quickly review, gestational diabetes is a major cause of macrosomia, which is defined as a fetal weight of greater than 4,500 grams for diabetic patients such as this one. This infant's mother had abnormal glucose tolerance tests that established a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and despite insulin therapy, had postprandial glucose levels that were well above the cutoff of 140 milligrams per deciliter. Her glycemic control was clearly poor during pregnancy, which is the strongest risk factor for macrosomia and shoulder dystocia. Induction of labor at 39 weeks is often recommended if estimated fetal weight is high, and vaginal delivery is acceptable, although prophylactic C-section is sometimes considered. This patient's delivery is classic for shoulder dystocia. The infant's head was delivered, but the torso was not, since the head-to-shoulder ratio is lower in macrosomic infants of diabetic mothers. Herb's palsy is the most common such injury from shoulder dystocia and is a result of damage to the C5-C6 nerve roots. A, quote, waiter's tip positioning with an extended forearm and flexed wrist may be seen and the moro-startle reflex will be absent on the same side. Neurologic damage can be transient or permanent for these infants. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, operative vaginal delivery with forceps or vacuum is sometimes used when expedient delivery is necessary due to fetal or maternal distress. However, it has not been shown to be especially useful in resolving shoulder dystocias and may even increase the risk of neurological damage from delivery in these cases. Answer 2. Administration of magnesium sulfate can be used as a tocolytic before 34 weeks gestation. For neuroprotection against cerebral palsy if delivery is likely before 32 weeks gestation. Or for preeclampsia to prevent maternal seizure. Although cerebral palsy may cause neurological symptoms such as spasms, contractures, and hypertonicity, it generally would not present similarly to herbs palsy as in this infant. Magnesium sulfate would therefore not have been useful for preventing this presentation. Answer 3. Decreased caloric intake in the mother during pregnancy would decrease the risk of maternal obesity and associated complications such as preeclampsia, intrauterine fetal demise, and congenital anomalies. 
However, there is no clear link between maternal obesity and fetal macrosomia, or shoulder dystocia. Furthermore, this mother had an appropriate weight gain between 25 to 40 pounds and a normal pre-pregnancy BMI. Finally, answer 5, episiotomy, involves incision of the perineum during delivery. Although it is occasionally performed in shoulder dystocias to allow additional room for internal rotation, it is not generally indicated to facilitate delivery unless internal rotation is unsuccessful. In this case, internal rotation was performed even without episiotomy, making this intervention unlikely to have changed the outcome. To leave you with a bullet summary, maternal hyperglycemia in pregnancy is strongly associated with macrosomia, which may lead to shoulder dystocia at the time of delivery. Herb's palsy is the most common neurologic consequence of this and may result in either temporary or permanent damage. That's all for this review about gestational diabetes. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.